So, so the other question that I wanted to talk about was writers that inspire us. Like, are there certain writers that you remember in your life that when you read them, you thought, I want to do that. I want to do something like that. Or writers that you go to today for comfort or, um, or writers that if you read them too much, you feel like you're sounding like, you know, what influence do other writers have on you and who are they? Um, I meet with other writers. <laughs> I love Steinbeck. I always have. Um, his writing is often very poetic. So it, it resonates with the poet in my soul. And I love that he writes about real people. Nobody famous, nobody important, just people. And he makes you get to know them. Um, his characters mm. have great depth. They're not, you know, stereotypes or cookie cutters. And do you go back to him today? I mean, do you read him currently or you just have? Sometimes. Was, okay. Yeah, sometimes. Um, I have a copy of To Kill a Mockingbird, but I didn't really like her other writing. No, same here. Um, yeah. And I have read reread that several times. The only thing with Steinbeck is some of his language is a bit out there. Well, let's 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 not kind of critique one another's taste. Let's just No, I'm just taste. saying some of his language is hard to understand is all I'm saying. I'm not trying to judge. Yeah. I'm just I'm just making a a point there that Yeah. He's good, but his language can be confusing. I would love to read Steinbeck again today and I think I think I will. I mean I had to read everything when I was in school, but so little of it was in Braille and mm -hmm. I'm reading books, you know, by authors that I really appreciate when I get them in Braille. Yeah. It's so nice to like, and I say like, look at not just the words, but the shape of the, the shape of the language sort of, which really you get on pages, not in Braille displays, which is too bad, but anyway. Yeah. Um, <laughs> okay. So, um, yeah, so do you have a, a, a favorite Steinbeck book, Deanna? Canary Row. Oh, wow. I, I like Grapes of Wrath, too, but um, I think Canary Row was my favorite. I have to agree with that, because you can actually picture the scenes as yeah. he wrote the story. I like that. Yeah, that's what I meant about his, his descriptiveness and his poetic um view of the world so that there's beauty in the most unordinary sort of things yeah yeah i think my favorite but it might be biased because you know they said if i read things in braille they stick with me more i mean i can still so there's only one that i read in braille and it was in high school i think but i can still remember it and i can still see the book it's one fat braille volume um, of mice and men, but I, I just I love that book, um, and I it sticks with me 
a little bit more too, because for the brief time that I was teaching college English, it was one of the books that I taught. And I think everybody really likes it. I think everybody really, you know, loves uh, Lenny. You know, Lenny, do you remember? Yeah. Well, there's a lot of darkness in his writing, but there's also, um, no matter how tragic or how terrible it is, there are moments of great beauty. Yeah, yeah. So I'll, I'll go next. I've got so many favorite writers, there's no way I could list them all. But I will say that early on, when I, when I was a little kid, I think reading Mary Poppins was when I knew I wanted to be a writer when I grew up <laughs> because I wanted to make up crazy stories and I wanted to make people feel as happy as the Mary Poppins books made me feel. I just want to, you know, I just, I loved how they made me feel. And then when I was older, you know, teenager, high school, college, I'm not sure which, um, were two women writers that I fell in love with. Um, Catherine Ann Porter. I just saw something about her and something else I was reading and I thought, wow, I forgot all about her. I gotta read her again, see if I still think she's cool. Um, <laughs> and then the other was, I perked up when Ann mentioned the references to Virginia Woolf. And- um, Craft is that book. I, I remember, um, reading To the Lighthouse, and when I was in college, all the women were reading Room of One's Own, you know, because it was kind of, if you're not familiar with it, it's, it's, it's an essay, and it's kind of like the beginning of, you know, women thinking a lot, out loud about needing equality, you know, a, a woman, person needs a, a Room of One's Own in which to write and have your own thoughts. And, um, um, Deborah, uh-huh. I, I don't think you realize you're doing this, but it seems to me you're kind of mumbling. Am you start I? off. Uh-huh. You know, I think it's got to do with equipment because Bob sent me a message and said, tell me what headset you're using because sometimes your voice is so wonderfully clear because he has a severe hearing impairment too. And he says, sometimes I can hear you so well and other times you're so soft. But I'm always using the same. I'm using my hearing aids alone or this headset. So I maybe. So I don't know. I will definitely try to speak up, and maybe I do mumble. You know, you you start off strong, like right now you're real strong, and then as your sentence goes on, it sort of trails off. Get sorry, I didn't mean to. That's all right. That's all right. Straining (laughs) to hear you. I'm sorry. Okay. So, and in case the mic on my headset isn't working, I just moved the phone and put it in front of my mouth. So, because that could be the case too, you know, the the cables on, um, on these headsets with mics and the cord, they wear out sometimes and then the mic isn't picking up. So the phone's right under my mouth now. So anyway, so anyway, so I said, Virginia Woolf really, really made me want to be a writer and, um, Probably it was her fault that I didn't write for a little while right out of school because I thought if you couldn't write something that good, why bother? So (laughs) (laughs) Uh kind of derailed me for a little while because then I realized, wait a minute, 
not everything has to be like, you know, deep literature, you know, somebody has to write the stuff that's on the box of the cheery, the back of the Cheerio box. Right. You know? so, <laughs> so I adjusted my attitude. But the other thing that I think, and I have tons of favorite writers today, men and women, um, but I heard or read a Stephen King quote, and I can't remember if I heard this in an interview or if I read this in an interview, but I know he said it. Something like, um, if you, that some of us, if you read someone's too much, you start sounding like them. You know, like one of my kids, when we would go on vacation, every time we would go on vacation in a different part of the country, we'd come home and she would be talking like them. Like she would have a North Carolina accent or a Chicago accent or wherever yeah. we had been. She would just... <clears throat> Her, would take that on and I think some of us maybe do that as mm -hmm. as writers so it's you know something that I think about because like if I've been reading a lot of junk you know like <laughs> a lot of really you know like super popular very entertaining fiction then I, I worry that, that I'm going to start writing like a moron with a limited vocabulary <laughs> so, anyway no, but I think it's important for characterization um, when I write about the reservation, I automatically start drifting into res speech, you know, mm. from my childhood, because wow. there's a certain rhythm to it that's different. Right. And um, as a child, I was a person that could fall into anybody's dialect without even trying. And... I became more and more aware of it as I grew up because I felt like I didn't want people to think I was mocking them, you know. Mm. Mm -hmm. But because I was an army brat, um, my early childhood was spent in Louisiana and Alabama, so I can drift into a southern draw real easy. <laughs> mm -hmm. and, um, yeah. Oregon has a certain rhythm that's different than Michigan and right you know, oh yeah it, oh yeah it's all yeah. um I think it has to do with hearing more than than writing though but I, I can yeah. hear them in my head when I'm writing right. about different yeah. people and it's easier than to get the the way they would talk yeah right so, Mary, how about you? Since you keep falling off here, let's get you to talk while you're connected. <laughs> oh, I'm so connected. <laughs> yeah, because I'm, now I'm on my landline, and you never know when that's going to go out. Um, <laughs> uh, many years ago, I fell in love with Barbara King Solver. Oh, I and I too. Yeah. <clears throat> um, I and I decided that that's the kind of writing that I wanted to do. Create, you know, I. I, I may be wrong in, in this, but I think her genre is uh, creative nonfiction. And that's what I've tried to do. Um, <clears throat> so I've, I, I, I'd like to read her again to see if I still think she's way cool. But I also currently, I really like Kristen Hanna because she just 
she just impresses the heck out of me with uh, you know the the research that she does for her books and her characters are are also so true and yeah yeah i mean they're not they're not flat you know like paper dolls they're they're like real people and you get in their minds and and you you just sort of live with them so i you know i like i like her those are the two that come to mind right off the bat i love both of those too mary yeah, i also too. like yeah. louise penny who louise penny oh yeah louise yeah. penny yeah yeah. I'm not familiar with Louise Penny. She's a Canadian writer um, who writes. Now, I'm, Mary, I, I know you say you're not a fan of um, mystery and detective stories, but you would like her books because there's always a mystery. But the reason you fall in love with her books is people. they're all set in this little village in Canada where everybody is brilliant and artistic and they're all good friends. And I, every time I read one of those books, I want you to want move there. I you want to be, move there. I want to <laughs> yeah. be with them. <laughs> all right. I'm going to write, I'm going to write this person, Louise Penny. Is it P-E-N-N-E-Y? Nope. Just oh, Y. Yeah. Just Y. Okay. And look at, um, it's not essential that you read them in order, but I find that I enjoy them more reading them in order. So look at, Bard, and you know, go to the series list and find what. Or unless okay. somebody knows, Deanna, do you know what the first one was? Because I don't remember. Um, I let me look. At, I've got my note taker here. I keep a, a reading log because when I find a favorite writer, I do the same thing. I'll go and find all of their books <laughs> and yeah. try to read them in order because it's I, interesting I to watch the progression of their craft sometimes. Yeah. Right. It's like, so another, um, another writer that, you know, Louise Penny made me think of, who's totally different. I don't know if any of you would like him, but I love him. His name is John Lesquire. And I fell in love with this one character that he has. His they're all set in San Francisco, and San Francisco is a character in all the books. It's so important. But he has this one character, Abe Glitzky, who's half black, half Jewish, and he's different in different books. In some, he's just a detective. In others, he's chief of police. And in others, he's retired chief of police. He's consulting. But I love this guy. And I, after reading one book, I just really wanted more. And it was confusing because Lesquire has written a lot of books, but he tangles them all up. So it's hard to sort out the series. Like, so he has, he doesn't have exact series. Like he has a lot of books. You can look up Dismas Hardy, who is one of his characters, who's Abe Glitzky's best friend. You can look him up and there's a whole bunch of books with him. So that's the Dismas Hardy series. But there are other books that are about somebody else entirely, but Dismas makes an appearance. And there are other books that, that Abe Glitzky is the main guy, but other people. So I just, you know, talk about a little Christmas in April. A couple weeks ago, I discovered 
that there were some John Lesquire books about a different guy named Wyatt Hunt who makes appearances in some of the books I already read, but I didn't realize he had his own little series. And he's really cool because he was like adopted as a baby. In the first book you meet him in, he's a child protective service guy. And he's like going into these homes where kids are being abused and he's like scooping these kids out of there. But now he's a private detective. And the book I just read, he, um, but anyway, the thing about these is these are not brilliant literature, but they are very, very, very well written. And you talk about character development. I know these people. I want to go to San Francisco and hang out with all of them. And I know their <laughs> restaurants and their bars, you know. And to me, I mean, if you can't forget a writer's writing, then that's good. That means it was good. You know, because, you know, we all know that experience. If we read a book just last week and we can't remember the name of it, Oh, gosh, yes. <laughs> you know, so, um, I lost my log of uh, last year. Did, did, you, did and you find so it? I don't, no, I've lost the entire thing, and I've only been reconstructing it as I, as I read stuff. Um, so I don't have that much under her name, but I do remember that I went on a binge and read everything she'd written up that yeah, time. Yeah. So it's mostly her newer books that I have now. Well, um, I, I will, I will try to find it and just send it, send it out so that everybody has that. Um, so, okay, Anne, you've been, we've made you be quiet and now you have to, <laughs> now you have to no, talk. I'm, I'm flipping your switch. Okay. That's cool. Oh, and, uh, just in case you missed it, Steering the Craft was the one I was thinking of by Ursula K. Le Guin. Say it again. What the craft? Steering the Craft. Okay. And okay. as far as favorite writers, I find that I love Terry Blackstock's Christian Mysteries and Christian th Thrillers because I'm writing a Christian supernatural mystery. And then I'm, I'm finding that it's ter Terry Blackstock and... There's one writer, she self-publishes a lot, but she's releasing a traditionally published book Will be of hers will be released in August. Her name is Jen Lowry, and she her she writes like she talks. Because I know her, because I know her writing group, she writes like she talks. And I was always, oh, I'm sorry, I was always um, enthralled, but fascinated by Karen Kingsbury, but here lately, I've gotten away from some of those, the traditionally published books. Mm -hmm. Well, I read them on Bard sometimes if I find some good ones, but there are mm -hmm. some because, I guess because I'm a writer and I can tell when the edit, the, the writing is not as good as it could be. Right, right. Yep. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. Lee Smith is another one too. The first person was Black stock, black hawk. I didn't make out black the name. stock. T E R R I, black stock. Okay. Okay. I'm going to try to make a little list. I'm making notes to, that I can send. Well, the and the author, the second one I mentioned, she's not on Bard, but she does okay. right now. But she has a lot of self-published stuff, so she's on Kindle and Audible and everywhere else. Okay. Um, Jen, J-E-N, Lowry, L-O-W-R-Y. Okay. And then um, Karen Kingsbury. 
You're right. I got I got her. I um I read one I read a few Karen Kingsbury, but first one I ever read was by far the best one that I ever read. Um and it's the one that's about nine eleven. It's called Something Tuesday. Oh, one Tuesday morning? Yeah. Yeah. And then she's got a, the the sequel is Beyond Tuesday morning. I haven't read them. Yeah. I haven't I read them. I think I read them both, but it's been a while. But then recently, um, sometimes, you know, somebody will have a, a problem with a, a book on Bard, and so I, I will go look at it to see what's what's the deal. And so that was the case recently that pointed me to a book that she wrote for kids. And it was, I had to read chunks of it to find the, the uh, error. And Ugh, it was awful. It was just so boring. I mean, just because you're writing for kids, you don't have to write like a moron. Kids aren't morons. Exactly. That's why I quit reading her stuff so much. Because, <clears throat> and traditionally published, I've noticed this with because I read Kindles too, uh huh, and Audible. So I've noticed this with indie published versus trad published. Trad published, some of their editing is bad. Mm, okay. And they change point of view like I change clothes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and it's confusing. I mean, I don't mean to sound to you, forgive that metaphor, but Frank Peretti is one, and I cannot get into his because it was he was recommended to me because of the the type of book that I'm reading, but mm-hmm. I cannot get into his books because his change points of view change from. Uh-huh. Chapter to chapter, sometimes scene to scene, and it throws me. That's why I've changed from third person to first person in my own book. Yeah. Because I need How to do you spell it. his his last name? P-E-R. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Let me look him up. <laughs> is he on Bard? Yeah, he is. He wrote um, the Cooper Kids series. He wrote the Veritas Project series. He wrote, um, what was that one? I was, The Spirit of Darkness, The Presence of Darkness, The Oath. P-E-R-E-T-T-I, I think it is. Did you say he's a blind guy? No. Oh, okay. All he's right. a Christian paranormal author. Okay. And he writes kids books. He's all over him. There was this book called The House by Frank Peretti and Ted Decker I tried to read. I got halfway through it and I couldn't read it. Mm-hmm. It's just too gross. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's interesting that we we all have kind of similar tastes, and yet there's some real different ranging. Yeah. One of my favorite authors that probably none of you would read would be uh, Seanan McGuire. Seanan McGuire? Uh-huh. What kind of books mm-hmm. does... What kind of books... She writes urban fantasy. Oh, so okay. it's contemporary contemporary urban cities like New York and, and San Francisco and whatever. But the uh, the main characters are um, kind of whimsical and funny because they're they're not exactly normal. <laughs> um, Nobody's normal in fantasy though. No, well, her main character is a a knight in the in fairy, but she lives in San Francisco as a as a uh, private detective. And so, some of her friends are things like a uh, Danny is a troll who drives a taxi, 
and it's you know but you know it's it's that doesn't just, work it, for me Deanna. that's why i said it's whimsical and funny yeah. because yeah. they they exist among us and they can can pass as normal when they need to but yeah. they're zipping around doing all kinds of crazy things you know fighting uh fighting evil and <laughs> rescuing <laughs> the innocent and yeah. stuff but it, in it in modern settings you know elizabeth goddard is another one i like too she writes um romantic yeah. suspense i thought so, of another favorite author uh jody pico oh yeah Cult? yeah i read one of hers and it, it was good she did change point of view but i think she and, and I'm not judging your taste, Mary, by any means, but it was about this, this kid who was supposed to have had Asperger's, but he wound up, his character was more like he had more lower functioning autism than, than the, Asper, the Asperger's because the, she, I think she did a little too much research. And I read that in a review. Because I didn't know the difference until I read an Amazon review. But, and I read that one in oh. There was a time when um, I, I, I read almost everything Jodi Picoult wrote, and I finally have taken managed to take her off her pedestal. But for a, a number of years, everything that as soon as the book came out, I bought it on Audible, and um, uh, I just I think she's amazing. But as far as writing from different points of view, that's what she does so brilliantly. She I mean she does that on purpose. Most of her books are done that way, and that's. You know, that's, I think there's a real art to that, to doing that and getting it right, like getting inside yeah. lots of different people's heads. I like it. Um, the, the only, uh, the, the last, well, no, the last book that she did was that one um, about the protest at the abortion clinic. And again, she just did such a good job of getting inside everybody's head and showing you know both sides of the of the debate and stuff. It was it's really and that's I I think she's great, but I do feel like you know as a couple of you were saying, if you follow a writer, then sometimes unfortunately you can see when they're kind of flagging and they're not. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you get sort of your fill. Yeah, or you realize they're yeah. not at the top of their game anymore or something. Mm. So, and awesome. I think part of that is Jody Pico started writing with her daughter. A lot of these people write with their adult children, who are the ones who are really, really successful, so they're making so many million dollars, they, don't, they can take a risk. So Jody Pico writes some books with her daughter. There's a bunch of people who do this. Stephen King writes books with one of his sons. Um, Mary Higgins I've Clark. Mary Higgins Clark, yeah. And her daughter Carol Higgins Clark, yeah. Yeah, and they sucked. They always suck, I think, when they when they write with mm. their and there's a few right. that I think have done a good job. Like um Tony Hillerman is now gone. And oh, I love his work. He's not always totally accurate about um, you know, some sometimes he changes things a bit from the way that I have observed them practiced. Yeah. But his daughter is currently writing and she 
has kind of picked up some of the characters from his book and, and run with them. Oh, that's um, nice. So she writes mostly about um, um, a Navajo police woman named mm -hmm. uh, Bernadette Manuelito, who is a minor character in his books. Nice. Um, so um, those that think that's a, a good pairing. I don't think yeah. that Carol Higgins Clark um, is as good as Mary Higgins Clark. No, no. <laughs> um, she just isn't. I don't like yeah. her books as much. Um, but, but then another one, this is, I mean, this goes off into the weeds, you know, just a, a weird, I, but I wonder about weird things that other people would say, who cares? But um, James Lieber is a really fine writer. Um, he writes a series set in Louisiana and the main character is Dave Robichaux. And they're yeah, very, um, they're, they're they're deep. I mean, they're, he, his main character is kind of, he, he's a former cop, but he's like a philosopher, poet, you know, he's just his, I love his descriptions of things. And, but anyway, in the book, the character has a daughter named Alifair and Alifair Burke, Dave, uh, uh, James Lee Burke's real daughter is a very successful novelist in her own right. Yeah. And I've read yeah, all is. her books and every one of them, I comb them for mention your dad, say thanks, dad. <laughs> never, never. So I want the backstory on the Burks. So, <laughs> Cause she never, she credits other writers and, but I know that's his daughter. So anyway, well, I, I think maybe in, some instances she's not she doesn't want to play on the connection might be the thing. Yeah. Because she doesn't want to be another Carol Clark, you know? Yeah. yeah, but I I don't know. I think there must be some estrangement or something there that she doesn't even thank him or dedicate anything to him or say she learned anything. She's, I don't know. She's anyway. like a lot of the big writers, they don't they don't think about the ones that, and I've seen this happen. They don't think about the ones that mentored them, but yet they think about their they think their editors and agents and stuff. But they don't thank the writers who really supported them when they were starting out. And they're yeah. and they don't also also they don't connect with new writers. A lot of them don't. So it's it's just turning nine o'clock. So I have. One question that I brought that I wanted to ask you guys because you have experience with self-publishing and I'm just curious about this. I don't know if you have, Deanna. Have you self-published a book? Um, only I worked with um, with um, DLD because oh. I was editing um, a, an edition of the um, Guide Dog User's Handbook. Um, oh, okay. Okay. So I've well, done that. I thought about it, but I kind of wanted to go with uh, with a standard university press. Right. And I haven't yet. The requirements are so complicated that I have not mm. gotten. You know, they want a first chapter and they want a synopsis right. and they want a biography and they want to, you know, different kinds of things. So I have, I get bogged down 
and I didn't get yeah. don't get very far with it. Well, I have a, a I have a somewhat mundane um, technical question then for uh, for Mary and Ian. Um, a longtime friend of mine has written a book and he's published the book on his he self published it, but he wasn't connected with any you know blindness. He's blind, but he wasn't connected with any blindness groups per se. So he didn't go to DLD or whatever. He hired somebody and I guess she didn't, she didn't do very well anyway. But so then he got somebody else to reformat the book and he published it and he said, it's going to be on Bard. So that's good. So he sent it to me um, just at the beginning of the week. And um, I want to read it because he's my friend and I want to know what he had to say. Um, a long time, really good friend. And so I'm really interested in his early life and what he wrote and everything. But one thing um, that kind of surprised me was at the beginning of the book, there's an apology about the margins and um, something about, you know, you will notice that the margins at the top of the pages are too narrow and at the bottom are too wide and there's nothing. You need to cut that. That's what I wanted to ask you guys. I mean, it seemed to me, it seemed really. That needs to be cut because if he got it reformatted, especially if he got it reformatted, that's got to be cut because that's that right there will turn a reader off real quick. Yeah. I mean, it's like he's justifying the bad work that somebody else has done. I don't ever do that kind of thing. So well, that just, reminds me. The people that get up to talk and they say, oh, um, please excuse my, my, my sore throat, you know, my scratchy throat. I've been fighting a cold and so I'm sorry about that. You never apologize at the beginning of speech. So okay. why should you apologize for your book? Thank, okay. you know, the, the formatting of the book. I, I don't understand that. Who did that? Did he do that or did the his editor? I don't know. I think he did it. And I I feel really badly for him because he's really he's really smart. He's a really good writer and um but he needs a lot of help for other reasons and um I think he may be dependent too, too much on other people. I don't know, but it was really off-putting that that's the very first thing. Like I start the book, and the very first thing is this apology about the margins. I'm like, <laughs> no, okay. no. Especially <laughs> if he had someone format it for him. If he wasn't yeah. happy with it, he should have had them change it. And and one thing about self-publishing, and I'm learning this too because I had some uh, editing faux pas when I paid somebody to publish the book. You can, if you self-publish it under your own name, you can always go back and do updates. Right. Well, that's one of the beauties of uh, self-publishing. That you know, you guys can go back in and change something because if it's electronic, um, you know, and that's one of the things that um, that I I I'm in a local writers group here, and the guy who's the who started the group is a former creative writing professor and he has helped 
many of the people in the group self-publish books. And that's one of the things that he says is, you know, it's, except for the books that are already printed, if something goes wrong, we can go back in and change it. <laughs> so, yeah, so any other future right. printed editions will have you right. 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 Which no, never apologize for something because that makes you look like you don't know what you're doing. To me. And now my problem is to struggle with that's not the only thing. The other thing that I have to tell him is in the note that he wrote me when he sent it, he said that he had a conversation with the librarian at his local talking book library who told him that NLS as a policy never publishes self-published books, but that they would publish his because it was so fine. And I thought, well, someone's telling him a big fat lie. So, um, I, I haven't I haven't told him yet, but I'm going to tell him because I feel like he needs to know that if he gets to do, you know, some public readings or something and he says something like that, he's going to embarrass himself because if he, you know, if he does anything where there are blind people, somebody's going to say, well, my friend self-published a book and then LS recorded it. <laughs> so, um, well, I think the difference is that a lot of the libraries have their own recording studios, like Perkins does, right. um, Wolfner here in Missouri does, <clears throat> and they will sometimes um, record and publish a book, and then it has to pass inspection with NLS, That's right. and it goes in with a different coding number, right. but... It's still in the NLS system, and anybody can can read it who right. is on board. But um, it has to be it has to move up the line from the local level, and it has to meet the standards of the of the national library. But it's not paid for to be recorded at one of the big studios. It's the difference, right? Exactly. Well, what he was talking about was his local library recording it. Yeah, and, and, and so that's off. how it's done. And it's uh, what she was talking about, and, and he misunderstood, was that there are books that are traditionally published, and they're they're brought over from um, commercial sites like Audible, and then right. they're brought it over. Um, they're distributed to, say, APH or one of the other bigger, the Washington, uh, the Potomac books. Potomac or yeah. um, Talking Book Publishers in Denver. Right. Yeah. That, yeah. that well, have I, yeah, paid I, yeah, I, I understand. I, yeah. I, I understand. So that's the difference. But, He's just well, misunderstood what she meant, I think. No, no. Mm -hmm. He didn't misunderstand. And it was a male librarian, but the librarian told him, at NLS, he told him something that maybe the librarian believed to be true, I don't know, but that NLS has a policy of never recording self-published books, and that's that's just not true. So anyway, we have gone over, it's, um, it's 10 after 9, almost, and you guys are great, and I don't care if we are small, it's been a fun group, <laughs> and... Um, I'd uh, like to make a book recommendation before I cut out. Um, okay. I like Nevada Barr, and her latest book is called What Rose Forgot. Hmm. And um, it came out in 2019, 
And it's about a woman who comes, uh, she has the flu, and because of it, she isn't able to uh, keep her medications down. And she comes out of it realizing that somehow she's been, somebody has dumped her into an Alzheimer's ward, and they're keeping her drugged. Oh, and so she escapes. And it, it sounds pretty, you know, horrible and drastic, but it's also extremely funny in parts. Oh, okay. Okay. Hmm. Actually, there's a book called What Alice Forgot, which is a favorite book of mine. I've read it a couple times, actually, by Leanne Moriarty. And um, so that's where, I, and I thought, oh, I wonder if this, and it's about a woman who bumps her head. She's in a spinning class. And she bumps her head, falls off the bike, and bumps her head, and um, loses ten years of her life. And so, <laughs> so she's she thinks she's wildly in love and about to have her first baby. And she's such a kind and gentle and generous person. And it turns out that where she really is in life is that she she's become like really materialistic and driven. And she and her husband are in the midst of an ugly divorce. But she doesn't oh, no. remember any of that. So <laughs> it's really it's really a good book. But it sounds like this one is too. So forgetting is a, might become a whole new genre of its own. <laughs> anyway, okay. So, well, thank you, you all, for, um, for being here. And um, well, thanks. I'll, um, I'll try to make a little list of, of these writers and books and, and send it out to a list. And... Um, and I'll add more if I th- I'll I'll send more if I think of any because I got a couple of other at least one more author that I can think of. Okay. Okay. Lillian Jackson Braun. She was she wrote the Cat Who mysteries. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and they were so good. I loved those mysteries. Okay. All right. Well, keep writing, everybody. Um, yeah. Take care. See you next month. Good night. Bye. <laughs> good night. See you next month. Bye. Bye. Bye.